0: Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Keaton Ross covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch in his latest newsletter, Keaton looked into the statewide turnout in the August 23rd runoff and found that most registered voters did not cast a ballot. Keaton, what percentage of Oklahoma voters participated in last week's election?
1: Yeah, so it was about 16.6% based on on the numbers I collected. Uh, of course, it's important to note that those are unofficial results. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday morning uh, Tuesday afternoon, the election board scheduled to certify those results, but these are going off of unofficial results. And that's with, uh, the small exception of libertarians with no local races on the ballot. But, uh, the vast majority of people had something to vote on. And of those people about 16.6% turned out. Was there any discrepancy in uh, party affiliation? Yeah. So about a quarter of Republicans, uh, cast a ballot, uh, compared to about 8.5% of Democrats and independents who, uh, the Democratic party allows to vote in their primaries. Uh, it's pretty simple. If you look at it, the Republicans had, uh, five statewide races to decide a lot of, you know, Senate and house runoffs. Uh, and on the democratic side, there was just one race, uh, for, uh, who's going to challenge Senator James Lankford, uh, US Senate race so a lot more races on the Republican side
0: now lower turnout in a runoff election is nothing new why are voters less likely to come out in August than they are in June
1: yeah so there are you know several theories there part of it uh, could just be apathy not you know a strong opinion either way on a candidate that will get people to turn out to the polls uh, another theory is just uh, for a lot of folks, uh, you know, especially in rural areas where you could be several miles away from your polling station. Um, just the the effort of voting, uh, you know, a second time in two or three months. Uh, there's a theory that some people just weigh it and say it's, it's not worth it.
0: Well, you know, we vote in June, vote in August, go back and vote again in November. Now,
1: most states don't use that kind of system, do they? Yeah, Oklahoma is one of eight states where... Every, you know, state legislative, statewide executive office, the governor, all of those candidates have to get a majority of votes to advance. You see in a lot of states, they just have to get the most votes out of a field of candidates. So, you know, they might get 35 percent and there's six or seven candidates and uh, that candidate with 35 percent goes on. Um, So, yeah, Oklahoma is kind of unique in that each candidate needs to get a majority of votes to to go on. Now, a handful of states are
0: using alternative systems to narrow down the field of can uh, of candidates. Uh, things like ranked choice voting uh, and the jungle primary. Can you talk about how those work a little?
1: Yeah. So the the ranked choice, and you see that in places like Maine and Alaska. It's not very widespread. Um, in more places in some local races. But that's essentially where uh, voters are asked to, to rank their candidates, you know, one, two, three in terms of favorability. Um, so that's one uh, method that has been uh, proposed as, as an alternative to instead of doing a primary and a runoff. And the jungle primary is where you have You have all of your candidates together, regardless of their party affiliation, and uh, the top two would advance. Uh, So that could be two Republicans going to the general election, two Democrats, Um, but that kind of, uh, in a lot of cases, you'd you'd have more races on the ballot, uh, but not the same, could be two people of the same party.
0: And if I remember right, Keaton, so that, that ranked voting or weighted voting system uh, says that if my first choice doesn't get a majority, then um, my vote goes to my second choice and so far on down the line, right? Until uh, there's, there's kind of a consensus that puts somebody over that 50% mark. Is that more or less yeah, how it that that's, works? Yeah, that's essentially how it works, yeah. All right. Now, What would need to happen for Oklahoma to
1: change our current system? Yeah, so that would that would come through legislation uh, that's that's passed in the state legislature. Uh, the election board, of course, would be tasked with kind of carrying that out and making sure it runs smoothly. Uh, but they don't have a say on how the elections themselves run or how often uh, we vote. That sort of thing that would have to to come through through a change in law. Have proposed election system
0: overhauls gained any kind of traction? in the legislature uh
1: we haven't we haven't really seen that in in recent years uh, of course there's the argument if you're able to have one less election that saves money um could potentially help improve turnout um but you know there's also the logistics of changing the system that's that's a lot of legwork um but it'll be interesting to see based on you know the reduced turnout we saw this august if uh, any legislation will be proposed, and if that will get anywhere, and, of course, I'll be I'll be keeping an eye on that. Now you
0: heard from several readers after your newsletter published Monday. Uh, what kind of feedback were you seeing?
1: Yeah, you know, I think I got maybe 10 or so emails, and I think one was, you know, our current system is fine, and um, everyone else seemed to think that, you know, the rank choice system uh, might be a better option where – Um, you, you know, you get it done once you get, you know, everybody has a fair shot in in the opinion of the people that reached out to me. Um, but you know, of course, if you agree with it, maybe you're less inclined to, to send an email, but definitely a, a variety of responses thinking that, that we should switch things up. Interesting. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read all of uh, Keaton's
0: work on the Democracy Beat and make sure to subscribe to his weekly Democracy Watch newsletter. You can do all that at (music) oklahomawatch.org. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. She's been covering the effects of a controversial law restricting certain lessons on race and gender uh, and how that is affecting schools across the state. Jennifer, what does House Bill 1775 actually ban?
2: So this bill um, bans eight different concepts, and these are things like teaching students that one race or sex is superior, one race is inherently racist, or that any person should feel discomfort or guilt or anguish because of their race a lot of times folks will refer to this as the um, critical race theory ban, but that's not entirely accurate, so we're, we're not going to call it that.
0: Now, two districts, uh, Tulsa and Mustang, have been sanctioned under this law already. What did they do?
2: That's right. These two districts have now been downgraded in their accreditation. The incidents um, in Tulsa was related to a staff training um a, a professional development that is required uh for these districts to do and a teacher complained about that training saying that it made um uh, white people feel guilty or like they should feel guilty um and then mustang that incident was a um, an optional assignment in a leadership class called Cross the Line, and a, uh, a student or parent complained about that.
0: Uh, now, some of the feedback suggested that that maybe was outside the scope of the law. What did you find?
2: One of the things I have pointed out previously and and found through my reporting, the law is really pretty specific that these are supposed to be mandatory um, lessons or part of the curriculum, and really neither the Mustang or the Tulsa incident was a part of the school's curriculum. It also didn't explicitly say these things, that certain students should feel guilty or that a race is superior. In fact, in the Tulsa case, the attorney who investigated the complaint found that it was a really close call, he said, and that it was really more in the spirit of the law and not an explicit violation.
0: Well, the State Board of Education took a look at that issue last week. What happened there?
2: So in July was when the two districts had their accreditation downgraded. And so last month, the um, I mean, last week, I'm sorry, the August meeting, the State Board again put these two districts on the agenda to discuss possibly reconsidering that accreditation. And when it came up, um, one board member asked, um, you know, for, for a vote to reconsider, and it did not receive enough votes to even be reconsidered. Three board members voted that down.
0: Was there any discussion?
2: Not really. It was very, very quick.
0: So what effect has that downgrade had on those two districts?
2: Well, one thing that happened at that meeting was we saw a lot of community members and school um, teachers and principals and folks come out really in support of these two districts. Um, they say that this violation has caused a lot of concern and worry. Um, you know, in Mustang, they talked about how students are really Um, afraid that their district will lose accreditation and it'll impact their chances for college. Um, Teachers are worried about, um, you know, answering questions truthfully or um, addressing some, you know, very difficult parts of our history with these students for fear of violating this law.
0: So what kind of effect is it having in other districts?
2: So Mustang and Tulsa are the only two districts that have faced actual Um, consequences from the State Board of Education under the law. But we have seen other districts, um, you know, in Norman last week, a teacher resigned over a policy that her district put in place really as a way to help teachers avoid coming um, in conflict with the law. They asked teachers to look at all of their classroom books and either have read them personally or Um, have research articles supporting their value. And this particular English teacher at Norman High School um, made kind of a political statement about that, covered all of her bookshelves and paper. And um, that political statement got her, um, uh, they took her out of the classroom. She had to meet with the administration and ended up resigning. And that made national news, actually. Um, And then I've just heard from other teachers that they're also taking books out of their library because they're afraid that somebody will complain and that these consequences are very severe. They can lose their certification. Their entire district can lose their accreditation, which would mean they could not operate.
0: Wasn't there a lawsuit filed over this bill?
2: There was. There's a federal lawsuit that's pending. Um, It was filed in October of last year. And they uh, um, immediately asked for a preliminary injunction, which would put the law on hold.
0: And so uh, they asked a judge to do that back in October last year. No ruling yet?
2: No ruling yet. It is very curious that... That is still out there. There was plenty of time to rule on that before the school year started, but it's still pending. And now the attorneys have entered some new evidence based on what the state board did in July, saying, look, here's what we were afraid would happen. It's happening. We need this to move forward.
0: Has there been any uh, discussion? It it seems to me the bill is pretty, um, pretty vague when it comes to what might make somebody feel uncomfortable or what might make somebody feel guilty. Uh, how, how would you know what's going to make somebody uh, uncomfortable?
2: I mean, that's the biggest criticism I'm hearing from educators. And I've, I've said it myself, like this law is squishy. It's not very explicit on how, what you can do the steps you can take to avoid, you know, violating it. And I mean, even the two districts that have been disciplined for it didn't—the incidents didn't seem to fall under the law. So it, I, I think people are saying it was vague on purpose, and is being used, um, you know, in politically motivated ways.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, you can read Jennifer's coverage of House Bill seventeen seventy five and its repercussions. All her. Other education coverage and subscribe to her weekly Education Watch newsletter, all of that at oklahomawatch.org. In her latest investigation, reporter Whitney Bryan uncovered accusations of fraud and embezzlement at a nonprofit that's supposed to help indigenous women. And the organization's founders are trying to cover it up. Uh, Tell us about the nonprofit, Whitney.
3: Well, the National Indian Women's Health Resource Center is based in Tahlequah. It's been around for about 30 years now, and it was developed back in the 90s from a White House directive during the Clinton administration. Um, They were trying to assist tribes around the country. They trained mentors, brought software to hospitals to track women's health issues, advised Indian health services on policies. It was really active there for a while.
0: And when did things start to go south?
3: Well, in around 2010, um, the funding basically ran out. Priorities on the national left Uh, level shifted from women's health to things like HIV and mental health. And so the nonprofit basically followed the money and started to kind of lose sight of its original mission. It shifted to things like suicide prevention and HIV testing more on a local level in Northeast Oklahoma.
0: How did you get onto the story?
3: Well, I actually received a call from employees of the nonprofit who had seen an investigation that I did um, earlier this year about another nonprofit um, that is supposed to help victims of domestic violence. These employees were really fearful about what might happen to their nonprofit, and they were frustrated that no one was listening to them or doing anything about it.
0: So uh, the employees who reached out to you, what what were their concerns?
3: They had a lot of concerns, but at. The forefront uh, of their concerns were the fact that just a couple weeks before they called me, their boss Janie Dibble, the director, um, they told me had taken more than eighty thousand dollars from the nonprofit and kind of disappeared. Uh, One of the nonprofit's founders, Pam Iron, then stepped in and took over, but she really didn't have any authority to do that. She hadn't been involved with the nonprofit in several years. Um, They. You know, and she was telling employees, you know, don't tell anybody what happened. Don't mention anything to our grantors. These two, Pam Iron and Janie Dibble, they had worked together for many years um, prior to this happening, and they were close friends. And so the employees really felt like um, there was something shady going on, and they feared for their jobs and, um, like I said, for the nonprofit, which they really believed in that original mission.
0: So were you able to talk to either uh, Dibble or Iron uh, or anybody else about those accusations?
3: Well, I called and texted Janie Dibble several times, uh, left a note at her house even, but I never did hear back from her. I did, however, sit down with Pam Iron and the nonprofit's new executive director, Kimberly Chafin, at the office in Tahlequah. They said they were trying to put the pieces back together, um, but they didn't really know what that looked like quite yet. And they also said they didn't have any plans to report any of the wrongdoing to Um, grantors or to sue um, or report Janie Dibble, but they are talking to an attorney and said they were working with the Oklahoma Center for Nonprofits.
0: How about uh, the employees? Did they report their concerns to anyone else? They did. They filed several
3: complaints um, and reports to authorities. They filed uh, whistleblower complaints with a few federal agencies. They reported Um, Dibble to the Cherokee County Sheriff and the FBI. Um, They wrote to federal employees who they worked with on some of these grants. And Patty Mitchell, she's a a former employee. She worked there at that time back in uh, March and April. She actually heard back from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services just a couple of months ago. They sent an investigator to meet with her over the summer, Um, but would not confirm whether they had actually opened an investigation into the nonprofit.
0: So uh, with the director gone, a couple of the founders stepping back in, what's happening with the organization now?
3: Well, Pam Iron, one of the original founders, she hired a new executive director who had also worked with her and with Janie Dibble for several years at the nonprofit. Um, They're trying to get a new board of directors back in place, which had been missing from the nonprofit for um, close to 10 years at this point. And they're revamping the mission statement, the website. They're telling me even the name of the nonprofit is up for debate at this point.
0: And just let me clarify, did you say they operated without a board of directors for 10 years?
3: That's correct. Um, Back in 2010, when sort of the mission started shifting due to the funding options, uh, board members started to get frustrated with that shifting mission, that they were losing sight of what they had originally, you know, started for, uh, which was health of Native American women. And so a lot of board members started to leave uh, kind of slowly over the next few years. And by 2015, they kind of had a a mass exodus of board members, which left Janie Dibble, the, the director at the time, and millions of dollars in federal money that she managed unchecked.
0: You teamed up with another reporter on this story. Tell us about that collaboration.
3: Yeah, I worked with a reporter from KGOU, Hannah France, and we went out to Tahlequah and did some reporting together on this story. She actually produced an audio piece that's on our website as well, where you can hear from a couple of the folks, including Pam Iron and the former employee, Patty Mitchell.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. Uh, You can read Whitney's story about this organization in Tahlequah and hear the audio piece at our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that that. that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month. Whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.